0: He was the wisest man of his age. He built the temple. He hosted the Queen of Sheba. He was Solomon, and he was also a disaster. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and on this episode of Tour for Christians, we'll take another look at King Solomon, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's get started. Believe me, I don't like to burst your bubble, but when it comes to biblical heroes, as I has often said, our heroes were not perfect. While they reach for and often achieve greatness, heroes such as Jacob, Moses, and David were beset with deep flaws. In other words, they were human beings, just like us. That's what makes them so special. King Solomon was such a flawed individual. He was the second son of Bathsheba, the infamous consort of King David. As we recall, after David impregnated Bathsheba, and then sent her husband, Uriah the Hittite, on a suicide mission, the prophet Nathan decreed that his son would die shortly after birth, but that the next son, born to Bathsheba, would inherit David's kingdom. This came to pass. But the second part of Nathan's prophecy is also important. Nathan further prophesied that David's sons would engage in a fratricidal civil war to decide who would inherit his throne. Even though David proclaimed Solomon as king shortly before his death, Solomon had to fight for the kingdom, even killing one of his stepbrothers to achieve this. Solomon also expanded David's kingdom, extending Israel's territory to the Euphrates River, the modern-day border between Iraq and Syria. He was so powerful, he enticed King Hiram of Tyre, the modern Lebanese city of Sidon, to furnish him with the cedars needed to build the temple. Interestingly, Hiram was a son of the previous king of Tyre, but his mother was of the northern tribe of Naphtali, making a special connection with Solomon. In a way, they were kin. Solomon's greatest accomplishment, of course, was building the first temple in Jerusalem. David was denied this privilege. God only allowed him to build his palace. David, God said, was a man of war. Solomon's very name means peace, and God determined that a man of peace would build the temple in Jerusalem. Later, the rabbis ascribed three books of the Bible to King Solomon, Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, as well as certain Psalms. These three books are part of a collection called Wisdom Literature, books that are more akin to Plato than to Genesis. Today we doubt that he wrote these books, but the mere fact that the rabbis attribute these books of wisdom to him attests to the high regard in which they held him for his wisdom. One famous story that we all know shows his wisdom. This story, of course, is the story of a disputed baby. Early in his reign, two prostitutes came to King Solomon to resolve a major dispute. Each claimed that a certain infant boy was her child. Obviously one of the women was lying, if not both. Solomon's job was to decide which woman was the mother. After listening to both women, Solomon, in what became known as a Solomonic decision, ordered the baby chopped in half. After all, in many disputes, splitting the difference is a good way to solve a problem. But not when it comes to a baby. When Solomon proposed that he cut the baby in half, One of the prostitutes screamed out to give the child to the other. Solomon immediately ordered that the baby, the entire baby, be given to the woman who backed down. He said that since she was willing to give up the baby rather than see it killed, she must be the true mother. How brilliant. But as I said at the start of this episode, there is a dark side to King Solomon, one that had terrible consequences for the Jewish people consequences that extend to the present day. We'll look at this after the break. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Before we return to our discussion of King Solomon, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Please remember to review and rate this episode on Apple, Spotify, or whatever service you are using. Also, please go back and listen to previous episodes if you have not done so already. A transcript is also available on our website, www.torforchristians.net, where you can find these previous podcasts. And if you would like to read my weekly Torah study, please go to Bible Stories They Never Taught You in Religious School, available for free on www.substack.com or through our website. Please subscribe to both. Let's go back to King Solomon and his journey towards the dark side. As we read in chapter four, Solomon broke the tribal boundaries of his kingdom. When he set up prefects over his territory, their allotments did not correspond to tribal boundaries. By attempting to break tribal loyalties, Solomon attempted to centralize his rule in Jerusalem. He ultimately failed, as we will see in a moment. But before we come to the ultimate disaster of Solomon's reign, we must return to the subject of King Solomon's women. Legend has it that Solomon had 400 wives. This is an incredible number of women he slept with. Let's go back to the first woman he knew. In 1 Kings chapter three, we read that Solomon allied himself by marriage to the Egyptian Pharaoh of his day. He brought his Egyptian queen to Jerusalem There is no evidence that his Egyptian wife encouraged him to worship the Egyptian gods. However, there is also no reason to think that she stopped worshiping her gods, and that meant that she had a shrine to Horus and other Egyptian deities in the king's palace. We can also return to the Queen of Sheba. There was a community of Jews who lived for millennia in Ethiopia, unknown to the rest of the Jewish world until the mid-20th century. Due to the massive famines in Ethiopia during the 1980s, the Israeli government flew these Jews, called the Beda Yisrael, to Israel. Remember that I said that Sheba was in modern-day Ethiopia? The Beda Yisrael claim that they are descendants of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, who apparently returned to Sheba pregnant. While these Jews might also be descended from Yemenite Jews who lived across the narrow straits at the southern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, the existence of this legend also attests to Solomon's sexual prowess. Later wives, though, truly sent Solomon in the wrong direction. Many of these wives brought their idols and pagan practices into the palace, incurring divine wrath in the process. By the end of his life, Solomon himself was an idolater. God withdrew divine favor from him. Which brings us to the final black mark against him, his treatment of his subjects during his reign. In chapter 5 of 1 Kings, Solomon, quote, imposed forced labor on all Israel. The levy came to 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, unquote. That's verses 27 and 28. Along with this heavy taxation, and the destruction of local tribal rule, his subjects began to get restless. It took 20 years to complete the building of the temple. During this time, the people seethed, even though the text recounts great joy when the temple was dedicated. Perhaps then this was wishful thinking on the part of the biblical writer who may even have lived in the court of King Solomon at the time. In response to his apostasy, God sent kings and armies against him. While Solomon was able to defeat his adversaries, the cost was great. Finally, his general, Jeroboam, attempted to wrest the kingdom from him. Ultimately unsuccessful, Jeroboam sought refuge in Egypt, where he lived until Solomon died. Solomon's death brings us to the saddest and most notorious episode in this whole story. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, succeeded him as king, In 1 Kings chapter 12, we read that the people came before him to seek redress from the heavy taxation that his father had imposed. After rejecting the advice of his elders, Rehoboam threatened to replace Solomon's whips with whips of scorpions, saying that if they continued to complain, their punishment would be even harsher than before. Whether his threat was due to his youthful indiscretion, arrogance, or just plain stupidity, the people rebelled. Fulfilling another prophecy, Jeroboam returned to lead a revolt of the northern ten tribes. Only Judah and the Levites remained with Rehoboam, albeit as a saving remnant. Jeroboam set up shrines in Bethel and Dan, traditional worship sites in the north. However, he also set up golden bowls in these shrines, emulating local Canaanite rituals. Sound familiar? This may even have been the impetus behind the golden calf story in Exodus. We learned that no king of the northern kingdom of Israel was ever faithful to God. Due to their idolatry, as well as turning away from worship in Jerusalem, these kings could do no right. Plus, most of these kings, like Ahab, were just plain evil, or perhaps just incompetent. In 722 BCE, The Assyrian king Shalmaneser destroyed the northern kingdom, creating the legendary lost ten tribes of Israel, scattering them to who knows where. About 150 years later, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, carrying the captives to Babylon, where they lived for 70 years, until the Persian king Darius allowed them to return to Jerusalem. Looking back on this tragic history, the writers of the later books of the Bible, kings, prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, and even Daniel, all agree that God used foreign kings to carry out divine punishment. Had the Israelites and Judahites not sinned, they would have remained on their land. Dispersion was not due to geopolitical factors over which the Jews had little control. Rather, dispersion was due to their sins. Once they repented, God would return them to the land. This theological construct explains why Judaism did not disappear after the Babylonian captivity. Instead of saying that your God beat up my God and was therefore more powerful, we came to believe that our dispersion was a form of divine justice. But due to our own behavior, we were punished. Our God still ruled over the universe. We were the ones at fault. Even with this amazing theological innovation, we must look back at King Solomon's actions and realize that he was the one who set this entire sequence into motion. Had he behaved more in accordance with God's intent, these horrible events might not have occurred. The later rabbis sanitized King Solomon just as they did for his father, King David. They emphasized his great wisdom and his legacy in building the temple without mentioning his taxation policies political rule, wives, or apostasy. This is the nature of historical revisionism and the rabbis were good at it. This leads us back to our original thesis that Solomon was a flawed individual combining moments of greatness with moments of utter despotism. In this way, as I said, he was quite human. And while we don't wish evil upon others or upon ourselves certainly, we are not perfect either. And that, perhaps, is the greatest lesson of Solomon's life. Next week, we will break from our ongoing discussion of biblical characters. With the holidays of Hanukkah and Christmas on the horizon, we're going to go back to see how these two holidays evolved and determine if there is any connection between them. Not really too much, but stay tuned. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. Please be sure to check out our website, www.torforchristians.net for a full list of podcast episodes. I'm sure that you will enjoy listening to all of them. In addition, you can subscribe to my Substack column, Bible Stories They Never Taught You in Religious School, a weekly Torah study which is published every Friday morning. I'm sure that you will enjoy it. Have a wonderful week and remember, Behold how good and how pleasant it is, for us to dwell together as one. Till we meet again. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians.